Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. At this time, I'm going to invite our lead pastor, Billy Glosson, up and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to worship together, Lord. We thank you for another beautiful day to hear from you. Right now, Lord, I pray for Billy as he brings the word that you have prepared for him. Um, I pray that you give him strength and boldness and that his message is clear. Lord, I just thank you for the time that he's put in to prepare this. I thank you for the way that you've met him this week. Lord, for those of us sitting in the sanctuary, I pray that you would just move any distractions and that we would receive this word um, with a joyful and accepting and expectant heart. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for how you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So this is like day six of me sounding like this, so sorry in advance. But uh, as we tell my toddler, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. So there we go. So today we are coming to the end of our 10-word Series. We've been walking through the Ten Commandments, looking at these ten words given from God to his people. And my hope is that as we come to the end of this series, these commands that you have been challenged to grow, right? That you've been challenged to see the ways in which God cares for you. Again, the hope is that we don't see these as just legislation from a grumpy old man in the sky, but rather these are loving commands from a good father who cares for us. And we remember that God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he'd brought them out to freedom, and now he's showing them the path of life. And so today we come to the final word, the 10th word, do not covet. Now, everyone currently is up in arms because of all of the new advancements in technology, things like uh, ChatGPT and Bard from Google. Man, people are even talking to me about using this to kind of help with a sermon. I'm like, I don't think anyone wants that, right? It's kind of interesting and weird. You've got these chat bots that you can dialogue with. They can answer questions. It's pretty incredible what they can do. But does anyone remember the OG AI? I'm talking about Furby. Yeah, you remember Furby? No, just me? All right, listen, when I was 10 years old, this was like, this was it, man. Like, that's all I wanted, right? I remember, like, the commercial for this, and it was like, it learns to talk. And I was like, it does? I need it. Like, I wanted it so bad. I thought this idea of a creature that, like, I could raise and teach to talk. Now I'm doing this, and I'm seeing, like, it wasn't that. Um, The point is, I thought it was so, so cool. And I, I remember seeing the commercials, I remember kids like sneaking them into school and like pulling them out of their backpack and being like, check it out. Like it was going to stay hidden when it starts like going in the, in the book bag. It didn't work. But I wanted one. No, 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 no. I needed one, right? Turns out when I got it, 
it was just this kind of annoying sort of stuffed thing. It was like this like plastic skeleton with like a thin sheet of fur on it. And it didn't actually learn at all. It just over time did the same thing that everybody else's Furby did. It said like a couple words. But when I looked back this week and thought about this idea of coveting, this is one of my first memories of coveting. And how silly is that, right? I wanted that Furby more than anything. Like, I still drive by the Taco Bell over near Rural King, and I think to myself, I remember, like, when I got my Furby and, like, opened it in that Taco Bell because I couldn't wait to take it home. How silly is that, right? I wanted that more than anything, and I'd do anything to get it. And sadly, I don't think I've fully grown out of this. I think it's still a problem. I see things. I want them. I need them. How about you? Do you wrestle with misplaced or inordinate desire. Today, here's what I want us to see. Here's the big idea. We're called to replace coveting with contentment. Coveting with contentment. So let's do a contentment checkup. You see, covetousness is this sort of respectable sin. It's kind of the one that we can hide pretty well. It's not obvious to others when we're coveting. So let me ask you a couple questions. If someone gave you $20,000 today, it's not a massive, incredible, and unbelievable sum of money, but it's a lot of money, what would you buy? Right? What if onlys most often float through your mind? For example, if only I was fill in the blank. If only I had, if only they fill in the blank. When do you notice your own struggle with contentment? Friends, coveting is fantasizing for a life other than the one that we have been given. When you think of your ideal life, what kind of life is it? We're going to break down each of these commandments, these ten words, in the same way. We're going to ask four questions. What does this command reveal about God, right? What does this command reveal about us? How does it point us to Jesus? And how does it show us the path of life? So let's start first with what does this command reveal about God? Well, what kind of God would command his people not to covet? Well, two things that we're going to see as we go through the scriptures together this morning. The first is God is more concerned with our hearts than our external behaviors. Say that again. God's more concerned with your heart than your external behavior. Now that it doesn't mean that God does not care about behaviors, right? We've been going through the commands. We know that he does. But our heart, friends, it drives actions every single time. A couple, scripture, a couple passages of scripture for us. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says this, And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So here's the thing. We can have hearts that while we're doing all the right actions and motives can be far from the Lord. The next thing we see in Luke 6.45, Jesus speaking says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces Good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. A glass can only spill what it contains, right? So if I fill a glass with sewage and I bump the glass, guess what's coming out? Similarly, if your heart is full, 
of wickedness and evil when the circumstances of life bump you, what overflows from your heart is evil. Next, Jesus speaking about our treasure, he says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Isn't that interesting, right? That, that our hearts can be far, though our actions can say a different thing. The overflow, what comes out of our mouth when, when our kids are frustrating, when our spouse gets on our nerves, when, when our roommate parks in the wrong spot again, like all those things, the things that could come out of us speak to what's here. And then the thing that we chase, the thing that we want, the thing that we desire, the thing that we treasure tells us where our heart is. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about coveting. All of the other commands, we talked about how they have horizontal and vertical implications, right, to God and to others. But this one is really unique because lying, right, that has an external face. You're lying about or to someone. Murder, that's pretty external, right? Adultery, external, stealing, so forth and so on. But this 10th word, it's internal, right? Coveting is internal. No one can tell if you're coveting. Right? No one knew when I like, was driving by Walmart that I was looking at it going, Furby. Like, no one knew that, right? But me. No one can tell. It's a state of mind. Actually, rather, it's a state of your heart. So what is covening? Well, the simplest definition is it's an inordinate desire or desiring what belongs to another. This is why the command says your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, servant, animal, or anything else it's not just their home, but their household, right? We see this all the time. Maybe you covet someone else's relationship. Man, I wish my marriage was like that. You covet someone else's wealth. Must be nice to have a car that, you know, actually starts. You covet their possessions. Like, man, that's a really cool phone. It could be anything. Now, here's the thing. Desire itself is not sinful. God gives us desire. He gives us ambition. Those can be really, really good things. The problem is misplaced desire. Now, all of this falls under that first idea that God is more concerned with our hearts than our external behaviors. The second thing we see about God in this command is that God is a gracious provider. God is a gracious provider. See, God wants us to trust him to see the sufficiency of his provision in our lives. Here's what coveting says. It says, God, what you've provided is just not enough. I need more, or I need better. I mean, we all know this, right? The most well-known psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Job 38, 41. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? That hit me this week. My wife has been really getting into bird watching. I was like, are you 90? Like, what are we doing here? Um, <laughs> But she's like really wanting to get, she went and got books from the library again. And I was like, what are you, what is happening? Um, we have phones. Like we could just, anyway, the point is, um, library's great. No one at me, all right? Here's the thing. I love this verse because no one looks at a raven and is like, how beautiful. What a lovely bird, you know? Ravens are these kind of like scroungy black birds and God cares for them. Jesus takes this idea and carries it on and says, look at all of the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? God cares for us, friends. He does. He provides for us. And we often forget his provision. We do. We forget his care. 
Like Michael and I, we, we went and prayed right before the sermon and he said, Lord, we're like fish who are unaware of the fact that we're swimming in water. We're so covered by your grace. And I'm sitting there like, man, that's true. Like I'm so unaware. We, we, we forget about God's provision and care. Here's what we do that's even worse. We attribute it to the works of our hands. We say, look at what I have done. Look at what I have built. Look at what I have earned. Romans 8, 32. I didn't know Michael was gonna read this earlier. Just works out that way. Holy Spirit. All right, here we go. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God is a gracious provider. He is. When we have inordinate desires, when we covet, we're looking away from that provision. Again, coveting is saying this, God, I can't trust you. I can't. But friends, God is concerned with our hearts. And he wants to care for us because he's a gracious provider. And so then the lens turns from the Lord to us. And we see second, what does this command reveal about us? What does this command reveal about us? What kind of people need to be commanded not to covet? A people who are constantly coveting, right? A people who are always comparing themselves and what they have to others. A people who do not trust in God's provision. There's a dad, he was walking home with his kids and his two little boys were fighting like crazy. They're bickering, they're crying loudly. He's just pulling the wagon. He's got that thousand yard stare, you know? And he passes by a neighbor, and his neighbor's like, hey, what's going on? Why, why is there such a huge fuss between these guys? He said, well, the trouble with these boys is what's wrong with the world. One has a piece of candy, and the other one wants it, right? We all want more. We all want something that someone else has. Again, here's a helpful way to understand coveting. Let's throw this up there for you. Covet. To covet is this. When you see what you don't have, and you, come, you become discontent with what you do have right? When you see what you don't have and you become discontent with what you do have. I remember when I, last year, for the first time in like four years, got a new iPad, and uh, Michael was like, I know that your iPad's only like a year newer than mine, but I saw it, and I was like, I kind of want it, and I thought that was really funny. We do that, right? It's like when the new iPhone comes out. Well, I don't know if you're not an iPhone person. That's fine. Green bubbles are okay. Um, People like get obsessed. They want it. You know, Pixel, if that's your thing, whatever. People want it. They need it. It's just the reality. But here's the deal. No matter what you have, there will always be someone who has a little more or has something much better. It's just true. Like this week, I hopped on Woot. If you don't know what Woot is, you're welcome. Woot.com. Great deals. Um, and there were new headphones on there, brand new. But they were like really discounted. And I was sitting there, I was like, man, those are really good. I don't need them. Like, I literally have headphones that work just fine. I don't need them. But I, I caught myself, and I'm literally writing a sermon on coveting. I was like, I'm going to take a five-minute break and go covet, right? Like, what's going on here? Now, here's the thing. It's not just material possessions. You can covet someone else's intellect. Man, I wish I was as smart as that guy. Or their abilities. Man, I wish I could run like them. Nope, Right? You could covet somebody else's relationships. We said this earlier, but we do this often, right? We see someone else, and guys, this is the allure and the trap of social media. We see people with these perfect marriages. We talked about lying last week, right? This idea that like, 
most of the time that's a facade, but we get caught up in it and we think, if I had that. Coveting is this inner grasping that says, I have to have these things or I'm empty. When we covet, here's what happens. Our world becomes really small. We fixate on what it is we want and we can think of little else. We start scheming on how we can acquire whatever it is. I mean, I remember, again, I keep using the Furby, but it's a really, like, it's a core memory. So I was like, I remember when the Furby came out, I was literally thinking, if I fast and don't eat lunch at school, I could keep that money. I, like, like, like a psychopath. Like, I was going to go after this. <laughs> Friends, this is why coveting is such a big deal to God. Because it's a root for many sins. It's been said this way, that those who covet soon discover that money, it can give you a bed, but not sleep. It can give you books, but not brains. A house, but not a home. Food, but not an appetite. Amusements, but not friends. Coveting promises what it cannot deliver. Two examples we see in scripture, and these are maybe a bit extreme, and for the sake of time, I'm just gonna highlight them quickly instead of reading them long uh, all the way through, but I would encourage you to check them out. The, the first one comes from 1 Kings 21. And it's this example of um, Ahab. So there's this guy, Naboth, he owns a vineyard, and it's beautiful, it's his, it's his inheritance. And Ahab sees it and is like, I want that. I need it, I have to have it. And so he goes to him, and he asks him, hey, can I purchase this from you? Or better yet, I'll give you another vineyard so that I can have this, because I really want to make it a garden for me. It's close to my palace, it's going to be perfect for me. And Naboth refuses because it's his family's, right? He, he's inherited it, it's, it's his and so Ahab literally pouts. The scriptures say that he was vexed and sullen, okay? And maybe that's how you feel when you've seen something that you want. You feel vexed and sullen. And so he goes to his wife, Jezebel. And, and here's the thing. If you're thinking of baby names, probably not a good one there, right? Jezebel, not good. So she tells him, hey, why are you crying? Like, what's wrong with you? You're the king. Do whatever you want. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw a party. We're going to invite this guy. We're going to have some people falsely accuse him. And then we're going to have him killed. Boom, vineyard's yours. There you go. Pretty intense, right? It's just a vineyard. Like, chill, dude. What are you doing? They break the 10th command, the 9th command, the 6th command, and the 8th. Let's just knock out a bunch of them. And maybe you don't know that one. How about this one, King David? A lot of us are familiar with this story. David was a mighty man after God's own heart, seeking him, following him. And there's this time when Israel's going to war, and David says, nah, I'm going to stay home finds himself wandering on the rooftop. Now, a lot of people like to twist this and be like, what was Bathsheba doing up there? Forget that. What was David doing up there? He's the king of Israel. He's supposed to be leading the charge into battle. Instead, he finds himself on the rooftop. He sees a beautiful woman, and he says, I'm going to take her. Takes her, has her. Then come to find out she's pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. So he calls um, her husband to come home. He says, why don't you come home, spend some time with your wife, and that way no one will know, everything will be fine. Except it doesn't go that way, because her husband is a loyal person, a man that fears the Lord and sleeps at the king's gate. So David says, why don't you put him at the front of the line so that he's killed? This is a man after God's own heart. Look what coveting does, how sinister it is. He sees something, he wants it, he desires it, and it starts working its way into his heart leading to another sin and another sin and another sin. He broke the 10th command, the 6th command, the 7th command, the 8th command, and the ninth. Listen, these passages in Scripture are here for a reason. 
These stories in scripture serve as a window into our own souls. See, Cornbread, we're, we're just the same. Desire and behavior go together. Right? It's been said that if you have something you can't live without, you don't own it, it owns you. There is no limit to what the heart can do when desire is misplaced. I love what the Puritan Thomas Manton says. He says this, beware of the beginnings of covetousness for you know not where it will end. Scripture shows us that coveting, it's not just dysfunctional desire. It actually goes deeper than that. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Friends, covetousness, wanting something, yearning for it, longing for it, it's idolatry. And that makes sense, right? When we covet, we're saying, I cannot be satisfied without this. I cannot have joy The reformer Martin Luther, he said this about coveting. He said, coveting is being unwilling to see your neighbor enjoy what God has granted him. Yeah, wow. See, this is when you don't believe your neighbor deserves what they've received. Right when they park that brand new car and you're like, man, they have that car? They don't even know how to use their money, do they? Right? They got that new job? He got that promotion? That guy? That guy's a fool. Oh, she got pregnant again, just like that. Just sneezed and got pregnant. We can't even have kids. See, friends, coveting touches places of great pain and vulnerability in us, doesn't it? A question we have to ask is, where do I have trouble celebrating God's provision for others? Where do I have trouble celebrating God's provision for others? Friends, coveting, I'm not just painting a picture here to like say well that's bible times now we're different no coveting can lead us to very very dangerous places there's a short story called the window by gw target it tells of two seriously ill men who occupied the same hospital room the man by the window was propped up for an hour each day to drain fluid from his lungs the other man spent his entire time on his back The two men, they would enjoy each other's company. They would talk for hours about all kinds of different subjects. And and during the hour that one man sat up in his bed, he would describe all of the things that he saw to his bedridden roommate. Each day, he would give great detail to the activities that were going on outside. He would describe the park with its lovely lake and its grand old trees. He would talk about children playing and lovers walking through the park outside the their window, and one day he even talked about a beautiful parade that went by. And even though this other man was laying on his back, he couldn't hear the music, he could see it all in his mind because his roommate would give such exquisite detail. But after a while, it started to seem really unfair. I mean, he enjoyed listening to his friend describe the sights, but he wanted to see it. He craved the view. His desire for the bed by the window, it became all he could think about. It kept him awake at night. And then in the darkness of one sleepless night, his roommate began to cough. He was choking on the fluid in his lungs and he was desperately groping for the button to call for help. But his covetous roommate sees it, could push his own button to summon a nurse, but instead, he just watched him die. The following morning, the nurse discovered the man's death and standard procedures carried out. They removed the body. And the surviving man said, hey, can I switch beds 
so that I can be by the window. At last, he was gonna have what he deserved. And so he's moved and painfully, slowly, he begins to prop himself up to take a look at the park. And to his surprise, the window looked out at a blank wall. Friends, fulfillment in life is never achieved with the venom of covetousness. The sin of covetousness, it's a grasping for what others have. It's like fishing with poisonous bait. You may reel something in, but it's gonna come with a bitter taste that always lingers behind. Friends, covetousness, it affects all of us. And it leads us to ask this, how does this command point us to Jesus? How does this command point us to Jesus? Here's the deal. Even if we could keep all the other commandments, which side note, we can't. Who could ever do this? Who has ever lived without thinking, if only I had that? Friends, we're all guilty of this in some way. So what do we do? Well, again, we counter coveting with contentment. Now, it wasn't long ago that we were in this passage as a church, but let's revisit it. Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 11. Now, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, if you thought that verse was about running a marathon, it's not. It's not. Um, if you thought it was, you know, about anything other than contentment, I'm so sorry. It has nothing to do with sports. Um, contentment, friends, is something that Paul says is learned. And he says it's not about not having desires. It's about trusting in God's provision and his care. Contentment, it's not about having more or less. Contentment is independent of circumstances. See, Paul doesn't have a preference for rich or poor, because again, it's not about circumstances. See, some have little, and they want more. If I could just have a bigger house, a better car. And some have a lot, and they want less. They think, if I could just get out of this 5,000 square foot home and into this 500 square foot tiny home, everything would be wonderful. And then they go and they hate their life, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't work. It never works. Contentment, friends, has nothing to do with, with what is in our hands and everything to do with what is in our hearts. There was a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley whenever he crossed over the Appalachian Mountains. One day, his co-pilot said, why do you keep looking down at that spot? What's so interesting about it? And he replied, well, you see that little stream there? When I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. And every time an airplane flew over, I would think, man, I'll look up and say, I wish I was flying. And now I look down and I wish I was fishing. Contentment, friends, it seems so elusive, doesn't it? But Paul says he's learned the secret. He can do all things through him who strengthens him. Here's the deal. Until you and I confess that we are incapable of contentment, we will be incapable of contentment. As long as you look to yourself and just say, be content, guess what? Doesn't work. We have to start by saying, I do not have it in me to be content apart from Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. Jesus had everything. Lived in divine community in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
And he gave it all up and became nothing so that we could have a restored relationship with God. Friends, Jesus was tempted in every way and remained without sin. The enemy took him up and said, all of this could be yours. Just covet, Jesus. But Jesus was always content, always satisfied. Jesus was nailed to the cross for all the times I've looked at God and said, this isn't enough. For all the times I've compared myself to others and wanted what they had. For all the times I've schemed to get more. For all the idols I've looked to and clung to instead of clinging to Jesus. In my place, condemned he stood. Jesus takes on all of our misplaced desire. And he offers us forgiveness. He says, your heart and your desires can be changed contentment it's to be full it's to be satiated it's paul talking about a soul satisfaction theologian michael horton says it this way he says it's not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the lord but the confidence that if god provides so richly for our salvation by choosing redeeming calling adopting and justifying us and by sending his spirit to cause us to grow up into christ likeness then surely we can count on him for the less essential matters of daily existence It's the ability to say, God, you are enough, despite my circumstances, despite the struggles that I'm going through. Listen, I know when I preach a sermon on coveting, some of you are in dire situations. God sees you, he knows you, and he says, what I have for you is more than enough, no matter what circumstances you are facing. If you want to compare your woes to someone on your own time, go to 2 Corinthians 11 and read about the Apostle Paul and what he endured. And he never started shaking his fist up at the sky saying, where are you? Instead, he said, teach me contentment. It's learned. It's learned. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, contentment with earthly goods is the mark of a saint. But contentment with our spiritual state, it's a mark of inward blindness. The secret of contentment, friends, is often that we are content in the wrong thing. Many of us are content with the fact that probably haven't read scripture in a long time. We're content with the fact that don't really live an existing community, don't really allow people to speak in my life. As long as I kind of believe the right things, vote a certain way, do a certain thing, I'm, I'm okay with that. And we find that we're so discontent with the rest of our lives. But if we flip it, and we're content with our circumstances, with what we have. But we want more of God. I want more of interacting with his people and searching the scriptures. I want more of who he is and what he's done. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the secret of contentment is not for people who nibble around the edges and live in the suburbs of faith. It's only for those who will go downtown. We should want and yearn for more of him and watch how he satisfies our soul. Last point. Fourth, what does this command reveal about the path of life? What does this reveal about the path of life? I know this has been heavy, so let's talk about the positive side of this commandment. See, the positive side of this commandment is learning to live with a sense of God's impending goodness. His impending goodness. Psalm 31. 
Psalm 31. You all heard it. I need water. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Coramdale, when we see God as a loving father who provides for us, we should be filled with gratitude. When we see Jesus, his perfection, that he lived without any sin, taking our sins upon himself, being judged for every time that we have been distrustful of the Father and compared ourselves to others, if we take our eyes off of us and we look to him and his resurrection power, we no longer see that which we long for. Instead, we see that we are forgiven. We are free. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and to give us new desires. And when that happens, we're able to experience the kind of contentment that Paul speaks of in Philippians 4. I love that Paul says, I've learned contentment. Friends, this is not like a, you hear one sermon, you apply it and you get over it. This is a lifelong journey of trusting in the gospel. It is. It becomes a place where we're able to rejoice with those who rejoice because we're not comparing ourselves with them. We see obeying the 10th commandment. It's really obeying the first, isn't it? We have no other gods before him. If we're totally absorbed in God, if we love him with everything we have all the time, then there's no room for coveting. There's no room for comparing. There's no room for being dissatisfied with what we have or don't have. If I love God enough to be content in all things, then the lifestyle of not coveting flows out of that. So Coram Deo, let me ask this question. What are you striving after? What is it? What truly matters? The sheer amount of time that we waste and give to other things is mind-boggling. There's a new study that came out that says the average person loses a month of their life every year doing absolutely nothing, right? 26 days a year go to wasted time. Oh, the seduction of meaningless things. Would God eradicate this illusion of covetousness, of having more of things that don't matter? And would our hearts yearn for the living God? We give so much energy, so much time, so much of ourselves to things that don't matter. I meet with people, I I, I talk with people, and I hear their hurts, I hear their pains, and the lull and the lie of the enemy is to fix your gaze off of Jesus. And I promise you, friend, as long as you do that, you will find more want, always. There is a world of endless promises that are all broken. Only Jesus satisfies. Like, what are we doing with our time, friends? Would we break from the tyranny of the lies of the enemy and would we bend a knee to the king of the ages? Jesus, friends, gives us life, abundant life. It's not this pious, lonely, go be a monk alone. It's a come together with the family of God and strive after that which really matters. Man, let's do that. Let's chase after him. 
There's so much that we see that we say, Lord, how do we fix this? How do we deal with this? And as long as we keep looking at ourselves and to others, we'll never come up with solutions. But if we fix our gaze on the one who has made all things new, watch what he can do. Four questions for us to consider. First, what keeps me from being content for what God has provided in my life? What keeps me from being content for what God has provided in my life? Second, where do I struggle to celebrate God's provision to others? Where do I struggle to celebrate God's provision to others? Third, how can embracing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection free me to be content with what God provides? Fourth, is there any specific area where I need to begin today walking in obedience to the 10th commandment. I'll put all four up on the screen for you guys so that you can take a picture if you want. People have asked for that. I'll do it on the last one for you. Friends, we, we need Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We acknowledge, Lord, that we look to things that are less. <coughs> We think that we can somehow, Lord, be satisfied by things that have no ability to satisfy us. The things that we give so much time and energy to eventually just become nothing. Technology becomes obsolete. Clothing becomes too small. Houses get old, worn down and broken. Cars don't start. Kids grow up. Our bodies fail. But we look to you, and you are the God who never fails. You are the God who pursues us relentlessly in Christ. And you call us to fix our gaze on you, the holy God, the infinite one. Chase after you and to see the ways, Lord, that you are worthy that you alone satisfy. So God, replace our coveting with contentment. Thank you, Lord. Pray all of this with confidence in King Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.